0: Morning. As the children are dismissed at this time with Miss Christie. Goodbye, children. You all are encouraged to take out a Bible and turn back to John chapter 18, one last time, for one more look at verse 36, John 18, 36, page 904 in the Pew Bible. Sorry, I sound ridiculous. I blame my children. It's the one negative of having so many kids, you're always sick. So I have no voice. Um, Pray for my voice. We're going to try something a little bit different today. Something a little bit more topical than we may be used to. Last Sunday, no, last Saturday, as I finished up writing the sermon, I entirely intended to move on to chapter 19 today. But last Sunday morning... As I was working through and editing the sermon one last time, I was entirely unsatisfied with my treatment of verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. What does that really mean? And what does that really mean for us? Christ is clear. His kingdom is not of this world. But this is also clear. We very much find ourselves right now in this world. We, of course, live every single second of this life in this world. And our every thought, word, and deed is done in this world. And so, one of the biggest and most complicated and most currently confused questions of the Christian life is how does Christ's kingdom, not of this world, relate to this world and the Christian life in this world? Or, as it's often put, what is the relationship between Christ and culture? Uh, David kindly, I don't know where David is, I can find people. David kindly took me to a very fancy event in the city this Monday. It was at the Union League Club. It was uh, First Things as a publication. It's excellent, read it. Uh, It was their Erasmus lecture. It was given by Carl Truman, who's one of my favorite thinkers currently. Uh, But the place was super swanky. There were many leather-bound books. There were large portrait paintings. It was in the Lincoln room, and there were all these bow ties and nice suits, and I felt very out of place in my $80 suit and my $10 Amazon tie that I was wearing. I also assumed that everyone in the room was probably smarter than me and that I was likely the only Reformed Baptist in the room. It was all very cultured, right? That's what we think when we think culture. We tend to think high culture. We think classical music, and chess, and, and, and so on. And that, of course, is culture, but that is only a small sliver of it. Culture is simply what man makes of God's creation, right? Culture refers broadly to the whole of human activity and what we create, as well as our, our language, our, our systems of thought through which we uh, understand and describe all these things. Everything that we do is culture. It's a term that's hard to define because it's so comprehensive of a concept. So we're going to stick with the simple definition that culture is all that man does and develops out of God's creation. God creates, then man makes. That's culture. And you may have never wondered specifically. You never thought, like, hmm, what is the relationship between Christ and culture? Right? You may have never had that question specifically in your brain, but you are constantly dealing with this issue every time you've wondered if you should be listening to Taylor Swift, every time you've wondered if you should be watching a certain show, every time you've wondered if you watch too much sports or play too many video games, every time you have struggled to relate Christ and faith to your work or your political views or your recreation and your entertainment, every single time you are wrestling with the question of the relationship between Christ and culture. Last week, we saw that this whole interaction in John 18 and 19 between Jesus and Pilate is ultimately about the identity of Jesus. And we know that everything is ultimately about the identity of Jesus. And the whole question of identity in this exchange revolves around the question of kingship. And the whole of everything revolves around the question of kingship. So Pilate asks him, so you are a king. That's what we considered last week, Christ the king. Well, a king implies a kingdom. We want to consider that kingdom more specifically this week. And if his kingdom is not of this world, well, what does, if anything, his kingdom, not of this world, have to do with the kingdoms of this world and your life in this world? What does do? the king, and his kingdom have to do with your work, your relationship, your recreations, your life in this world? Let's see. As I said, this will be a bit more topical than usual. We're going to take 1836. We're going to use that as a jumping-off point. I want to introduce to you a framework that you uh, may not be familiar with that may hopefully be helpful to you. I believe it's a biblical framework, and I'll try to show you that from Scripture, and then we'll seek somewhat to apply it. But I'm going to introduce to you what is generally called the doctrine of the two kingdoms. The doctrine of the two kingdoms, or sometimes it's called two-kingdom theology. This is a verse about Christ's kingdom and it not being of this world, this kingdom. This then is a perfect opportunity to talk specifically and practically about how the kingdom of God relates to the kingdom of this world and your life in it. So let's get to it. We have four short, simple, two-word headings for you to help structure our time and uh, thought. We need to first review last week, and the one main idea, the the big idea, make sure and get the first thing, that's the most important, uh, Christ, who is the king. So we're going to start with the fact that there is one king, but then we're going to see that maybe surprisingly that there are two kingdoms, and thus we have two citizenships but that there is always and ultimately only one end. And we will close with that. So one, two, two, one. Let's read our text first. John 18, as I said, we're going to focus on verse 36. Let's let's kind of set some of the context. Let me read for you verses 33 through 38. Uh, Please pay attention. This is what your king wants to say to you today. John 18, 33. that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Let's stop our reading there. Let's pray. Let's ask for God's help in this time. Pray with me. Father, we have sung and we have confessed that Christ is King. Father, we have in many ways lived this week as if we were King. Father, we need you now to help us in this time to to see the the kingship of Christ, uh, the goodness of of the kingship of Christ, the rightness of the kingship of Christ, and what that means for us and uh, our life in this world, a world that is often uh, so opposed to you, a world that is, seems to be so often characterized by by strife and, and by, by conflict and, and unrest. Um, Father, what does it mean that Christ is the king over all that? What does it mean that Christ is uh, our king? Father, we want to see him for who he is. and We want to better understand what our our uh, lives uh, look like in light of his kingship father we desperately need your help to accomplish um, what needs to be done um, in this time father I ask that you would help us to pay attention I pray that I would not be in any way a hindrance and a distraction from the glory of Christ and the revelation of, of who he is and the call to submit to him and to repent and to believe in him and to find life in his name Um, Father, there are people in here who do not know Jesus Christ as king. We pray that you would work in their hearts and that you would grant them life in Christ and repentance and and faith. Uh, Father, please help me. Help the preaching of your word. Please help the hearing of your word. And we ask this in the name of Christ, our king. Amen. All right, so point number one, we do start with the one king. Last week, we looked at both the beginning of John's gospel and the beginning of Genesis. Mark begins with a different beginning. Mark 1.1 starts the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark introduces his whole book saying the beginning. This is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. What is that good news? Well, Mark tells us, but he tells us in terms that we're less familiar with today. Mark writes, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel is the good news of the coming of the kingdom. We don't tend to think of the gospel in those terms today. Maybe we should. What is a kingdom? Well, that will be point number two. But first, to have a kingdom, you obviously have to have a king. And that's the focus of John 18 and 19, Christ the king. It's how Pilate opens this, one of the most fascinating interactions in history. Verse 33, he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Why is that Pilate's question? Remember, John is selectively including and excluding certain scenes to focus the attention and the action on Christ. We need to be very intentional in our lives to be focusing the attention and the action on Christ. But we saw in verse 28 that the Jewish religious authorities have brought Jesus to Pilate, the Roman authority. There must be some sort of charge some sort of reason that they are bringing this man before Pilate. And so he asks them in verse 29. In verse 30, they don't really give him an answer. Ah, this man were doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Well, Luke 23, verse 2, fills in the details. When they bring Jesus to Pilate, Luke writes, they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation, and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Remember, in the Jewish trial, they've just come from, the charge was blasphemy. Blasphemy is explained well for us. Back in 1033, the Jews attempt to stone Jesus and say, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself and who is God? God is the King. We could spend a very long time working through a biblical theology of God as King in the Old Testament. Let me give you just a few brief examples because the Jews would have known their scriptures, they would have known all of this. They simply did not believe that Jesus was who he was claiming to be. But the kingship of God is all over the Old Testament, it's all over. The Psalms. Here's just a few quick examples. You can just jot them down and check on them later. Uh, psalm 10 verse 16 says, The Lord, Yahweh, is king forever and ever. Psalm 47 6 says, Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. Why is God the king? Over all the earth, Isaiah 37, verse 16. O Lord, Yahweh of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned, that's throne, that's a king, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. God is the king of all the earth because God is creator of all the earth. Next time, we'll be all about authority from 1910. Pilate thinks that he has authority. God has all authority. And authority is simply the, the right to do or declare or decide. And everything comes down to authority. Says who? That's next time. But notice the connection between author and authority. The author of a work has authority over that work as he is the creator and originator of that work. I am currently resigned to never having authority over a work because I'm probably never going to be an author of a work. I've just given up all the hopes. It's never going to happen. But author assumes authority. Oh, may maybe a stretch, but author assumes authority. The point is that as the author of all and the creator of all, God is the authority over all. He is the king of all. Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. 145, 13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. So it's just clear, God is king. His kingdom is over all and it endures for all time. Daniel 4.32, the Most High rules the kingdoms of men. His is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Again and again and again. And then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, praises and extols and honors the king of heaven. One more passage in a moment, and I'll be done. But first, a couple of just initial implications and applications. First, if God is king, that means that you are not. That's simple. I know that sounds simple and obvious, but remember, this is all that sin really is. Sin is our attempt to be God. Sin is our attempt to be king. Sin is no to God, yes to self. No to God's sovereignty, yes to our sovereignty. Thus, no to his kingship, yes to our kingship. Sin is simply a rejection of God and an assertion of self. And as we saw last week with Jesus as the truth, sin strikes at the very fabric of reality. It's not just breaking some rules. It's not just doing a couple of wrong things. The whole world reality is structured according to the word and the truth of God. Sin strikes right at the heart of that. And so sin also strikes at at the deity himself. Sin is an attempt to substitute self into God's place. Sin is substitution. And so repentance which is the heart and soul of the Christian life, includes recognizing that this is what we are doing in our sin. And then by the grace of God, hating that and beginning the lifelong process of turning from that. But we are belaboring this point because nothing that follows is going to make any sense until we can see both that God is king and that sin is your attempt to be king. God is king. You are not. One other just... Obvious implication, but second, if God is king, that means that not only uh, that you are not king. Give me a second. Don't get offended or something. Hold on. But that Biden is not king, but that Trump is not king, the United States is not king, nor Wall Street, nor Hollywood, nor social media, nor whatever you need to fill in the blank there. Whatever it is, if it's not God, it's not king. This is going to be one of the main ideas today. That means that whatever it is, it's not ultimate. It means that it's not the ultimate authority in your life. That means that it's not the ultimate end in your life. That means that it should not get your ultimate attention and affection and devotion and trust and hope. God is king, and there is only one king. Now, one last passage. Isaiah chapter 6. I'm going to read the first five verses, so if you want to look at it, you're welcome to turn there. 5.71. I know you know this passage, but there are, I think there's this, this key part of it that I think we often miss. Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 5, 5.71. Here's what we read. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I, Isaiah, said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah sees God. He's given this vision of God. God, the, the all-glorious King, and again, Isaiah is undone, right, aware of his sinfulness in the presence of the King uh, and his holiness and greatness and glory but the key part that we miss doesn't come until later it doesn't come until John 12:41 which we considered but i think it's really important John 12:41 is the end of part 1 of John's gospel it's the end of the book of signs the result of all the revelation uh, on Christ's part verse 37 though Christ had done so many signs before them they still did not believe in him. John goes on to explain this with prophecies from Isaiah and then John writes this in John 12:41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Spoke of whom? He spoke of him above whom they did not believe. He they spoke of Christ, John says that Isaiah saw him and spoke of him. Isaiah, who saw the vision of the Lord on his throne, the Yahweh of hosts, who is holy, holy, holy. Isaiah, whose eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, in seeing the King, saw Christ, the King. That's the Son of God there in Isaiah chapter 6. The Son of God, John 1 tells us, is the one who makes God known. No one has ever seen God. The Son of God is the one who makes him known. So remember, when you are seeing and hearing God in the Old Testament, you are generally hearing and seeing the Son. The Son of God, the pre-incarnate Christ, is the King on his throne in Isaiah chapter 6. And then Christ makes that clear throughout his ministry, who he is as Yahweh, as Christ, the King over all. And the Jews disbelieve him, they reject him, They accuse him of blasphemy. That's why we are where we are, with Jesus standing here in front of Pilate, the representative of Caesar, the king. That's why, though they accuse him of blasphemy in the mind of the Jews, their real concern is actually his claim to be king, the authority over Israel, because that would mean that they are not the authority over Israel. And they would thus lose their place and their power. And that's why they accuse him of claiming to be king before Pilate because Rome will tolerate no king but Caesar. They must kill this king. But for our purposes now, uh, all I want you to see is that when we read in the Psalms that the Lord is king forever and his kingdom rules over all, we know that means that Christ is king forever and Christ's kingdom rules over all. He is the one But if that is the case, if he, this Christ, is the king ruling over all, always and forever, then how can he say in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world? Point number two, we move from the one king to the two kingdoms. I'm drawing this idea simply from the fact that Jesus can say that his kingdom is not of this world. We've clearly just affirmed that he is the king over all. His kingdom is this world. (laughs) Or consider his first words in Mark 1.15 again. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So there must be at least some sort of distinction within the kingdom. In Mark 1.15, Christ is the king forever. His kingdom rules over all at all times. And yet there's some way in which he can say that the kingdom of God is now coming. It's now at hand with his arrival. This is where this idea of the two kingdoms comes from, or you could call it the twofold kingdom if you're uncomfortable with this idea of two distinct kingdoms. We're simply trying to see and emphasize that scripture speaks of God's kingdom in two ways. Let's call the first one what we have seen so far, let's call it God's sovereign kingdom. Let's call the first one God's sovereign kingdom. Chapter 2, paragraph 2 of our statement of faith on God says, God has all life, glory, goodness, and blessedness in and of himself. He alone is the source of all being, and everything is from him, through him, and to him. He has absolute sovereign rule over all creatures to act through them, for them, and upon them as he pleases. So that's what we've just seen. He is the king. Daniel 4, again, he's the most high and he rules over the kingdoms of men. His dominion is everlasting. This is God's sovereign kingdom. Some call it the common kingdom. Some call it the civil kingdom. I don't care what you call it. It's just, it's just the world, which in its sin is opposed to God, yet it still remains under his sovereign lordship, his, his rule and his reign. But this is not what Christ is talking about in John eighteen thirty six. So, let's refer to this second part or the second aspect of the kingdom as God's spiritual kingdom. Some call it his mediatorial kingdom. Some call it his redemptive kingdom. I avidly adore alliteration. So, I went with sovereign kingdom. Thank you for the head shake, Tabitha. Sovereign kingdom and spiritual kingdom. Sovereign kingdom spiritual so what is Christ's spiritual kingdom well we've already seen that it is not of this world we've already seen that the content of Christ's preaching was the good news of the kingdom and we've already seen that with Christ's coming that kingdom is now at hand my devotional reading this week very timely thank you for God's providence it has had me in the gospel of Luke and obviously the kingdom of God is a major theme Luke's. Uh, Look at Luke if you would like. I'm going to run through a couple quick passages for you. just want you to see this. We're trying to get a taste for what what is this spiritual kingdom. Uh, Start at 443, which is on page 860. I'm going to start just giving you more text so I can stop and drink water because I'm going to die. 443, 860. Yeah, this is the same as Mark. At the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. We never talk about the good news in the gospel as the good news of the kingdom of God. We've got to bring that back. The good news of the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. Now we're going to have to jump and skip a lot of things, but jump to chapter 17. Luke 17, verses 20 through 21. There we read this. Luke 17, 20, being asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. What does that mean? First off, the kingdom comes in ways that are not observable different ways, non-worldly ways, non-ways that other kingdoms come and grow. So again, this is a different kingdom. But also, what does Jesus mean when he says it's in the midst of you? Does he mean the kingdom is inside the hearts of the godless Pharisees who are seeking to kill him? No. What is in the midst of them? Christ is in the midst of them. He's standing right there in the middle of them, among them, in the midst of them. The king literally is in the midst of them. And so his point is simple. The kingdom has come because the king has come. This one king, sovereign over all, has come and become man, and his, this spiritual kingdom, comes with him. Okay, What is this kingdom? What is it like? Look at chapter 18. This is an important one for understanding the kingdom. Luke 18. First, the disciples again demonstrate that they do not understand the kingdom. Uh, people are bringing infants to Jesus, The disciples are rebuking them, at no babies, no thanks. Uh, again, the disciples are just sometimes, what are you guys doing? But look at verse 16. Jesus says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Compare that and the children that receive the kingdom to what follows right after that with the rich young ruler. Notice the question in verse 18. What does he ask? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus rehearses the law. In verse 21, the man believes that he has kept the law. Instead of arguing with him, Jesus puts his finger right on the man's idolatry in verse 22 and says, one thing you still lack sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So instead of saying, you like, oh, you haven't kept the law, let me show you. He just says, all right, fine, do this one thing. And that reveals all of the ways that he hasn't actually kept the law. The man hasn't done what he has thought that he has done. Then we read that the man became very sad because he was very rich. Verse 24, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. We should take that verse a little bit more seriously. Uh, We are, most of us in this room, historically, and just even considering the world right now quite wealthy and comfortable. I'm tempted to look at Hollywood and celebrities and say, they're wealthy, I'm not, so this doesn't apply to me. No, we are the wealthy ones. How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. couple of things. First off, note that the man asks in terms of eternal life, Jesus answers in terms of the kingdom of God. basically the same thing. John 3, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 7, you must be born again. Verse 15, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Eternal life, kingdom of God. Jesus uses the terms interchangeably. And so, second, since the kingdom must be received like a child, and since it is difficult for those with wealth to enter into the kingdom of God, it obviously follows then that everyone is not in the kingdom of God. Of course, everyone is in the sovereign kingdom of God under the sovereign rule and reign of the one king. But everyone is clearly not in the spiritual, redemptive, saving kingdom of God. This is why Christ the king has come. This is what he has come to do. When the disciples learn that it is difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, impossible. Camels can't go through eyes of needles, right? The point is, it's impossible. And so they cry out, then, then who can be saved? Remember, the rich are the blessed in their eyes. If the blessed can't get in, nobody can get in. Exactly, and that's exactly what the kingdom is about. It's not only impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom; it's impossible for any of us to enter the kingdom of God. Luke eight twenty-seven: What is impossible with man is possible with God. That's why the king has come. See, for anyone to be saved, it is entirely dependent on a work of God, a work of grace. And that is why Jesus the Christ, who is the sovereign king overall, stands there, bloodied and beaten, before the small, cruel, cowardly Pilate, submitting himself to the humiliation, about to submit himself to the death, as we saw last week, for us, in our place. This is why the Son of Man must be lifted up to take on the curse of sin for us. The essence of sin is substitution. We sought to substitute ourselves into the place of the King. So must the essence of salvation be substitution, where we see amazingly and graciously the King substituting himself into our place, the place of sinners, so that we might be saved, born again, and then enter into his kingdom. Because all that is to say that there has to be some sense in which we understand that there are two kingdoms, or that there's at least a twofold distinction in how Scripture speaks of the kingdom of God. There is God's sovereign kingdom, and then there is God's spiritual kingdom, or saving kingdom, which is just the, the rule and the reign of God in the hearts and lives of his People giving them life, making them new, transforming them, and making them like Christ, the king. Everyone is part of God's sovereign kingdom. Only those who are born again by the grace of God, through the work of the servant, substitute, sacrificing king, are part of God's spiritual kingdom. And now, if there is only one king but two kingdoms, and you find yourself by the grace of God as part of his spiritual kingdom, then that also means that you, point number three, have two citizenships. Let's, let's try to apply a little bit here uh, at the end. So again, the question is, so what? Yeah, why do you just spend all that time talking about one king and, and two kingdoms, and did you really need to know all these things? What does this mean for you? Well, consider first citizenship. Philippians 1.1. Philippians 1.1, in my opinion at least, is one of the great translation missed opportunities in the ESV. Paul says this in Philippians 1.1. This is how he opens. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. In Christ Jesus, at Philippi. Prepositions. Two different prepositions. In, at. In the Greek, There's one preposition, and they are the same preposition, and it's in, E-N, in the Greek. Literally, Paul writes to all the saints in Christ Jesus, in Philippi. In a sense, there's the two citizenships. Paul draws this out further in chapter 3, Philippians 3, verse 19. Paul writes about enemies of Christ. You see, so that they live in Philippi, but their citizenship is in heaven, in Christ Jesus. Christians are dual citizens. And notice what it is that defines the enemies of Christ. Their minds are set on earthly things. That would seem to imply that the friends of Christ, those in Christ, would be and do the opposite. And so we jump from Philippians 3 to Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Where is your mind set? Now, let's, let's, let's try to be clear. Let's think carefully. Our minds are, of course, set on all kinds of things. Your mind is set on work stuff coming up, money stuff, relationship stuff, recreation stuff. Some of your minds right now are starting to drift to lunch stuff, right? These are all earthly things. And of course, come on, we have to have our minds somewhat set on those things, right, obviously. First Timothy 5.8, Paul says that if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith, and he's worse than an unbeliever. Ephesians 5.25, it's gonna start saying this every week, husbands. This is what you're supposed to be doing. Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's our calling, husbands. So, but the point here is to provide for your family and to love your wife and all of the many of the other things that scripture tells us, you have to give time and attention to those things. You have to give time and attention to work and money and relationship, earthly things. And let me be clear. I know I'm going to get accused of all kinds of things after this sermon. That's fine. But let me be clear. Those are good things. You have to think about those things. So that, that cannot be what Paul means when he calls the enemies of Christ, those who have their minds set on earthly things. What he must mean then is that for the enemies of Christ, for them, earthly things are first things. Earthly things are ultimate things. Earthly things are are king. So the Christian doesn't pay no attention to those things. Of course we do. But for the Christian, the things that are above, heavenly things, spiritual things, are first things. They are the ultimate things. The things that are above, the Christ that is above, is king. And this can help us to understand how these two kingdoms relate and how we are to relate to them. One other illustration. 1 Timothy 4, eight. I love this verse. It's very convicting. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. That's exactly what I'm trying, but maybe failing, but trying to communicate here. But bodily training is of some value, That's important because there are a lot of people that seem to act like it's of no value. Sometimes I go to the South and the guy's preaching about self-control and I'm like, "Ah, I don't know if I'm going to listen to you on this. That's probably my own sin. That's probably not a good thing. No, like bodily training is of some value. Take care of your body. We don't get to eat as much as we want of whatever we want. We don't get to sit in front of screens all day as our body wastes away. Bodily training is of some value. Why? Creation. Because God made us, designed us, created us body and soul. be clear, the physical is good. And the Son of God, in taking on flesh, affirms the goodness of the physical. And so we should seek to be good stewards of our physical bodies. And we can honor the Lord as we do so. Bodily training is of some value because the body is important. But, obviously, but... It is not the most important. It is not of first importance. Bodily training is, is the emphasis, it is of some value. Let's change the emphasis. Bodily training is of some value. Godliness is of value in every way. Why? He tells us. Because it has to do with both the present life and the life to come. And that's how it is when it comes to these two kingdoms listen if I give great attention to my body but no attention to my soul then I'm a fool and the marathon is going on right now I'd like to I like to run okay, it'd be a lot of fun listen if I can give, if I have no problem giving two or three hours to bodily training or to running but I'm like oh you know just too busy I can't figure out time to read the word right again I'm a fool and I've gotten my priorities completely out of whack And if I give great attention to the sovereign kingdom or the kingdom of the world and I give no attention to the spiritual kingdom, then then I'm a fool. Actually, if I give great attention to the kingdom and the things of the world, but no attention to the kingdom that is not of this world, then I'm not part of that kingdom. I'm not saved. I do not have eternal life. But it is this idea, this doctrine of the two kingdoms and the primacy of the spiritual kingdom the kingdom that is not of this world that can better help us uh, know how our citizenship in that kingdom relates to our citizenship in this kingdom, Uh, what the kingdom that is not of this world has to do with the kingdom that is of this world and our life in it. It is the doctrine of the two kingdoms that can help clarify what we are for and what life is ultimately all about. So one king, two kingdoms, two citizenships, point number four, back to one end. I said earlier, you know, the first part of John's gospel is often called the book of signs. This, the second part that we're in right now, is often called the book of glory. Why? Because of the supreme revelation of the glory and grace and greatness of God. Uh, through Christ on the cross, through the king on the cross. For it is there, in the juxtaposition of, of king and cross, it's there that we see both God's perfect justice and perfect love perfectly come together. God is just, sins must be punished, wrongs must be made right, and since the wages of sin is death, that can only happen through death. All of us have sinned, and so all of us owe that death that's justice. But God beautifully and brilliantly maintains his justice in providing that very death payment for us. Remember, sin is substitution. So must be salvation. In sin, we substituted ourselves in the place of the king. In salvation, the king substitutes himself in our place. And as he does and as he dies, God's justice is satisfied and our debt is paid and we are forgiven and we are freed and we are reconciled and we are restored to God. And so God's love and grace and mercy and compassion is poured out on us. It is there that the glory of God is revealed in Christ the King on the cross. There we see who God is. There we see him in all his glory. And listen, that's what everything is ultimately about. This is the one end. Now that Nora and Tessa are older, we're back working on the girls memorizing the shorter catechism. You can ask Tess. She's at least got the first question down. She was driving me crazy last night. I was like, no, it's this. test Tess. Say, just say the words that I'm saying. But she's got the first one down. She's got it. You can ask her. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Again, there's no catechism question, more known and less lived. But that is the design. That's the end. That's the goal. That's the purpose of everything. God is so indescribably good and beautiful. He is I am. He is author, originator, creator, sustainer, guider, goal, just like the son must be at the center of our solar system as its weightiest object. Just as everything must revolve around the sun, so God must be the center of reality and everything else must revolve around him. The heavens declare the glory of God. Creation declares God's glory. And the Son of Man, lifted up, declares the glory of God. Redemption declares God's glory. That is the one end of everything, both of the sovereign kingdom and the spiritual kingdom. The only difference is the way that those two kingdoms will glorify him. Daniel: 244 says, "And in those days those kings, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. But this kingdom shall stand forever. Listen, all other kingdoms shall come to an end. The sovereign kingdom, the kingdoms of this world that God sovereignly rules over through through natural law, um, through the state, the authorities that he institutes to, to regulate those things. All of those things, though, will come to an end. Yes, God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the world, but the kingdoms of the world don't recognize that, and they don't honor Him as God. They reject Him. Yet He is still directing them according to His purpose and end, which will ultimately be their end. You just go read Revelation seventeen and eighteen and nineteen. The end is described earlier in Revelation eleven fifteen. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. You see, at the end, the the two kingdoms will once again be one when Christ the king returns to do what? To defeat his enemies and to do away with sin and evil and injustice. Everyone should want a world with no more sin and no more evil and no more injustice. That's what Christ is coming to do when he comes to make all things new. Listen, we know the end. We know what happens at the end of the ages. And thus we know our end. We know what we are for. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Revelation chapter 1. This same John writes this. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So that's Father that spirit, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, there's the son, listen to his description, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He made us a kingdom. He made us priests and what do priests do priests mediate priests go between god and man first peter 2 9 you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light that's why we're here that's what we're for He specifically says he saved you that, this thing, that you may proclaim his excellencies. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And when he came, he did not overturn unjust governments and establish a new system of government. He didn't start a school. He didn't build a hospital. He didn't start a nonprofit. He didn't post on social media about all the injustices uh, around him. So in fact, again, you won't like this, but you can look. And you will not find a single clear example of the New Testament church or of Christ speaking out against any of the social ills and injustices that plagued the first century world of the Roman Empire. And there were many more of those ills and injustices than there are today. I'm not saying we shouldn't do those things. I'm not saying those things aren't good. I'm saying that's not the mission of the church. Jesus didn't do any of those things, but he did say clearly, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And Jacob just led us so well through his last words at the end of Matthew, the gospel that is all about the kingdom. Jesus commands us and he commissions us. He tells us what to do in Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. Listen, that's the mission of the church: glorifying God through the proclaiming of His excellencies and through the making of His disciple, of making of disciples. That's why we're here, and that's what we're for. But what about all the other stuff? What about culture? What about work? What about politics? What about recreation? Am I saying that stuff doesn't matter? No, I'm not saying that. I know someone is going to accuse me afterwards of not caring enough about whatever their thing is. I know that whatever the thing is going to be. Let me be clear. I am not saying that those things aren't important. I am saying that those things do have some value. But that this The kingdom, our calling to advance the spiritual kingdom through the preaching of the gospel and the making of disciples has value in every way. Yes, those things are important, but they are not the most important. Again, at least get one idea today. It's taken me a million minutes to communicate one very simple thing. Earthly things are important. Eternal things are most important. Are we living as if eternal things are most important and this is important because much of the church in the west has gotten confused about what is most important one side is trying to transform the culture through the arts and through cultural engagement and being winsome and like the culture the other side is trying to transform the culture top down through politics again the focus has shifted away from advancing the spiritual kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel The focus has shifted to trying to change the culture from the outside rather than people from the inside. Good news. This was really helpful for me. This weighed on me for so long and I didn't understand it and it was so freeing. It is not our job to transform the culture. We don't have to do it. We play no role in ushering in Christ's kingdom. Christ the King does that. He will do it. He will bring the kingdom in its fullness when he comes. And he graciously gives us one task. This is to make disciples. He calls us to trust him and to love him enough to speak of him and to be the means through which he continues to build his kingdom through the salvation of sinners. Listen, so now, without the, without the burden of having to be radical or feeling like we have to change the world or to solve all the problems, we are free to live our individual, ordinary lives and to do our jobs well, and to do them with excellence to God's glory. To enjoy his creation, to enjoy legitimate cultural activities, knowing that he is the good king, that he's sovereign over all, that thus we can honor him as we do our jobs well to his glory, and as we enjoy legitimate recreations and those things to his glory. And we can do all those things while also seeking to love our neighbors, and to do good to those around us, without this implicit guilt that we are supposed to be righting all the wrongs and bringing about the kingdom. Only the king can do that. And good news, he will. And so all we have to do is to live our lives entirely in light of this, the one king. Yes, your your work matters. Your life matters. The day-to-day things that you are doing and pursuing matter as you do them under his lordship and as you do him to his Glory. Live everything in light of the one king. Run everything that you do through the standard of the one end that you glorify God and enjoy him forever. Matthew 6:33 in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, the manifesto, the marching orders of Christ's kingdom. Don't be anxious about your life. Don't obsess over food, don't obsess over clothes don't obsess over politics, don't obsess over money, don't obsess over all these earthly things which are important but are not the most important. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Seek first his kingdom because it is the most important. And we can do that in all kinds of different ways. But one of the main ways that we do that is by faithfully serving him here where we are in Woodside, Queens, with all kinds of lostness around us, fighting to actually believe that people apart from Christ die and go to hell. Again, I just, I just want to believe that truth, and I want to live as if I actually believed that truth. Do we believe that and interact with the people around us that apart from Christ, they have no hope? We can do all the good in the world. We can solve all the problems. We can get, feed everybody, feed everybody, and educate everybody and set everybody up in some sort of perfect communal, uh, just utopia. Apart from Christ, every single healthy, safe, fed, educated person dies and goes to hell. Do we believe that or not? These things are important. This, the kingdom, salvation by grace through faith in Christ is the most important. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Let me close us with a word of prayer. Father, please help us. Father, we are entirely dependent upon your grace. Father, I am entirely dependent on your grace. Father, if my emphasis or my focus is in any way off, Father, please adjust and and correct and, and fix that. Father, we simply want to understand what it means that Christ's kingdom is not of this world what it means that we are um, souls who will go on into eternity. And that the only hope for any of us is the salvation that is offered to us entirely through the work of Jesus Christ in our place. Father, we want to take more seriously that which is of first importance. Father, we want to love our neighbors in every way. We want to do a better job of ministering to people and helping people and to blessing and to, to serving people. Father, we... Desperately need to grow much in those areas. But Father, people are dying without the gospel. People have not even heard of Jesus Christ. And yet we, take, we give such little consideration to what you have called us to be. Um, your kingdom, your, your priests, those who proclaim your excellencies. What you have called us to do, to, to make disciples. Father, I pray that Woodside would be a place through which you are doing that. I pray that you would equip us and empower us and motivate us to take the gospel to the nations and to increasingly live our lives with with gospel intentionality for the purpose of of engaging others with the good news of of Jesus Christ. Um, Father, sometimes the task just feels so overwhelmingly big, and it is, but it is not up to us, and and it's up to you. Um, So remind us of that, that we are set free simply to humbly and to faithfully uh, serve you, and to speak of your great love uh, for us uh, to those you bring into our lives. And I pray that we would do that more consistently and more faithfully. Father, save sinners uh, through the ministry of Woodside Community Church, both individually and corporately. Father, help us to live as with um, Jesus Christ and his kingdom, as that which is of uh, first importance and has, a, has value in every and, and all things. Father, please help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.